This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. Now, for those of us that are remaining, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and please open it to the New Testament letter of Galatians. We're in a series working our way through Galatians, and this morning we'll be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So please open your Bibles to Galatians 2, 1 through 10. As you're turning there, I want to give just a brief report on our daughter, Emma. Uh, She's doing much better. Whatever was in her lungs, whether it be allergies and there was a bit of infection, is cleared up. Uh, So she's breathing much better, looks better. So we just praise God for that. And thank you uh, for your continued prayers as we continue on on this journey. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, before I read these verses, keep in mind that we're in the middle of, uh, of Paul giving a rebuttal. He's been preaching the gospel, been ministering to the church at Galatia. There have been teachers that have come in that have accused Paul of preaching a gospel that is not from God. They've said, you've made this up. It's from man. So last week we looked at chapter 1, verses 11 through 24, where Paul said, no, it's not. It came from God. A revelation God gave me through Jesus is how I received this gospel. I did not consult with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Now, that was part one of the argument. Now we're going to look at part two, which is found in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, where Paul says, even though I did not consult with them about the content of the gospel, when I had a chance, I presented it to them. And they affirmed that I was preaching the gospel, the true gospel. So with that in mind, let's dive into the second part of Paul's rebuttal. Verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery... To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they they to the circumcised. Only 
They asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. May God be glorified in the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. Every president since George Washington has taken the same oath of office on the day of their inauguration. The oath that the president takes is found in the Constitution itself, in Article 2, Section 1. So every president since George Washington, including Washington, has taken this oath. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Although it's not as publicized, the, president, the vice president-elect also takes an oath. It's slightly different, a little bit longer, and it's the same oath that is utilized by members of Congress and some federal employees where they say, I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. Are you aware that members of the armed forces, both enlisted soldiers and officers, take an oath that contains these words? For those of you that served in the armed forces, you may remember this. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. Now, in those three oaths, did you pick up on the common theme? Protect and defend the Constitution. It's because the Constitution, although it is a human document, serves as a safeguard for our nation. To safeguard the freedoms that we enjoy as well as to safeguard us from tyranny. Now in many ways, the main point of Galatians is the same. To affirm and protect the gospel. Paul is defending the gospel first and foremost because it's the only way of salvation. You lose the gospel, you lose the only way you and I can be right before God and be guaranteed of being in His presence eternally after death or due to His return. He defends the gospel because it is the good news of salvation by grace through faith. And if it is lost, we will again fall under the tyranny of sin and legalism and that tyranny always rules through depression, guilt, Fear and death. Now false teachers arrived at the church in Galatia. And these false teachers have done nothing but stir up the church against the gospel. Keep in mind, these false teachers do not deny the basic tenets of the faith. That's why they're so deceptive and effective. They affirm, did Jesus die on the cross? Yes, he did. Did he rise from the dead? Yes, he did. Are you saved by grace through faith? Yes, you are. Plus, they said, and this is the problem. You Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, must be circumcised to show you are a part of the true people of God. If you do not do that, 
then you must not be a part of the people of God. And if you're not a part of the people of God, then you must not be truly saved. Now Paul has been arguing that that is not necessary at all. Paul responds with this letter and he responds passionately to defend the gospel that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No other way, no addition, no subtraction. And this letter from the very beginning is full of passion. It's one of the few letters that Paul wrote that does not have a thank you or some sort of affirmation of the church to whom he is writing. No, this one dives in. And perhaps no other passage than the one we read shows Paul's feelings of anger and passion for the gospel more than what we read earlier. You see, Galatians 10, chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 has been cleaned up in the English translations to make it more readable. In the Greek, it is full of parentheses, lack of punctuation, staccato phrases. It's like Paul is a man who is so angry, he can't get, it, get his words to, to right come out. He's just so mad, he can't even speak or see straight. So he just get it out some way or another. That's the feeling you get here. This is no small matter to Paul. The very heart of the gospel is at stake. And Paul has been attacked as he is preaching the gospel. Paul, you have made up this gospel. The false teacher said, if this gospel were truly from God, then it would include circumcision. So Paul, as I said earlier, starts to defend the origin of the gospel. It came through revelation given him by Jesus Christ. If you look back to chapter 1, verse 18, though, Paul says, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But they didn't give me anything to say. Now, what Paul does is he begins to point out that the gospel he preaches has been affirmed, not given by, but affirmed, by the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. They agree with it. Now, if we were to outline this difficult passage, I think it would follow something like this. Verses 1 through 2, Paul talks about going back to Jerusalem. You'll notice he says, after 14 years, I went again to Jerusalem. Now, there's some debate, and this is a minor point. Does he mean 14 years after that first visit in verse 18, which would mean this is 17 years after he was saved? That he went back. Or does he mean 14 years total? In other words, he was saved 14 years ago. Then what would it be? 11 years ago he went. It, it really doesn't matter. That's a moot point. But I think what is important is where he says in verse 1, I went up because of a revelation. I believe the revelation he's referring to there is the revelation recorded in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Paul is ministering in Antioch. And while he is preaching at Antioch, which is north of Jerusalem, in the area we know as Syria today, a prophet by the name of Agabus says there's going to come a famine. God gave him a vision that a famine is going to come upon the land and hit Judea especially hard. So the church at Antioch takes an offering they give to Paul. And because of the revelation given to Agabus, Paul takes this money to the church in Jerusalem to help them when the famine comes. So henceforth, Paul returns to Jerusalem. But he takes with him two men, Barnabas and Titus. And Titus becomes the test case. Now this is necessary because of what's written in verse 4. 
false brothers were secretly brought in. Now, this is at the church in Jerusalem. They slipped in. Why did they slip in? To spy on the freedom they have in Christ so they might bring us into slavery. Now, it's clear what Paul thinks of them, these false brothers. He's saying they're not really believers. But for some reason, they want to come in and pull the church back into Judaism. Who knows their motivation? God alone does. Paul says, all I know is they were brought in, somehow slipped in. Maybe they had friends in the Jerusalem church that said, come, check this out. But they came in for one purpose to bring them back into slavery they are enemies of the gospel who want to bring the church back under the Torah back under circumcision back under the law but Paul doesn't yield one bit notice in verse 3 he says Titus who is with me was not forced to be circumcised he was not compelled coerced in any way now force becomes a key word that appears three times in the book of Galatians here regarding the church in Jerusalem he says Titus was not forced by the leaders of the church in chapter 2 verse 14 when he's talking about Antioch he says they were not forced to live like Jews. And then finally again in chapter 6, responding to Galatia, he says even in Galatia, they were not forced to adopt the law. No coercion, no authoritative pressure applied to make them live under the law. Titus was the test case. And then for another piece of evidence, Paul responds to the response of the three pillars. James, the half-brother of Jesus... Cephas, who was Peter, and John, the son of Zebedee. And in verses 6 through 9, he says, They upheld the gospel I was preaching. In fact, they recognized that the gospel Paul was preaching is the same one they were preaching, that Paul just had a different calling to go to the non-Jewish people while Peter and the other apostles focused on the Jews. In fact, in verse 9, he says, They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas. That's the seal of approval. He says the church gave the double thumbs up. Now, out of this text, the main theme that emerges is the gospel must be affirmed and preserved. It's not a small matter because the gospel is at the heart of who we are. And in this passage, there are four facets of the gospel diamond that sparkle brightly that we must be aware of lest they become tarnished and their light become dimmed if we in some way begin to compromise the gospel. So we start here. The gospel must be preserved. Why? Because it brings unity. I draw your attention back to verse 2. Paul says he went up because of a revelation and he laid before these apostles the, the pillars of the church, the gospel that he proclaims to the Gentiles. Why does he do that? In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, be very careful how we interpret the latter part of verse 2. Paul is not doubting the veracity of the gospel of salvation by faith alone because of grace alone. What he's wanting to be certain of is this. A corollary of the gospel is that there is one people of God. 
There's not supposed to be a Gentile church and a Jewish church. There's supposed to be one church, one people of God. And so Paul is wanting to be certain that as he is preaching, the church in Jerusalem is in agreement that this is not about creating multiple peoples of God, but one people of God. That is at the heart of what Paul is saying in this letter. In fact, later in Galatians, he comes back to this to say, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, keep in mind, Paul is not saying that there's not masculinity and femininity. There's not man and woman. He's not saying those distinctions are erased. In each of these areas, these are areas where the church would have been divided. There would have been a Jewish church, a Greek church, a slave church, a free church, a church for men, a church for women. And Paul is saying, no! In Christ, there is one people of God unified in the gospel. You see, ours is a world that is characterized by division. We know the division between whites and blacks, liberals and conservatives, haves and have-nots. Understand that the beauty of the gospel is that it, it bridges those divides and makes one people of God unified around the gospel, not by compromise, but by Christ. Not made one by human goodness, but by God's grace. Not made one by the power of legislation, but by the power of the love of God that stands out in a world that is fragmented where we say, here is the unity you are seeking in Christ. A few years ago, Dallas Jenkins directed and produced a show called The Chosen. It portrays the Gospels. And I have to confess to you, I've enjoyed watching it. I think it's one of the best dramatic portrayals of Jesus I've seen. He's real. He actually laughs. Can you imagine that? Jesus laughed, and he did. But what I think is one of the most beautiful parts of it is the portrayal of the disciples. Because it hammers home how the disciples had to learn to die to self and come together around Christ. We tend to forget that. We tend to sanitize the disciples and think, oh, they were walking with Jesus. They had it all together. But we forget there were differences. One of the better known disciples, because he has a book and gets the headlines, is Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Now, I want you to think for a moment about what that means. Matthew was a Jew who had sided with the Romans to make a living by collecting taxes from the Romans. And those taxes came from the Jews. So here's a Jew working for the Romans to get all the money he can out of his fellow Jews. Now, one of the lesser known disciples is one called Simon the Zealot. You know what a zealot is? The zealot is a person who believes God and country. In other words, excuse me, a zealot believes the Romans should be either driven out of the country or killed. And a zealot believes that any Jew who has sold out their country to work for the Romans should be driven out of the country or killed. Okay. Simon the zealot. Matthew the tax collector, you boys just get along now. Do you see the power of the gospel? 
to come together and to say, you know what? We have differences, but in the end, it is Jesus who brings about reconciliation because the gospel is about grace and forgiveness. The church is to demonstrate this to the world. That's why we must have the mind of Christ because out of the mind of Christ where we put the needs of others first and where we seek the glory of Christ, we begin to learn about forgiveness and grace and the unity that comes about. The B.D. Annabelle is a, a pastor or one of the pastors at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And he remembers the day when the NFL All-Star Game was actually a game. Today it's a demonstration of skills, but there was actually a day when the NFC would play the AFC. The NFC would have on like blue jerseys, the AFC would have white jerseys, and they would get to play. And they had the same colored jerseys, but they each wore the helmets of their respective teams. And if you ever watched the NFL All-Star game, when they actually played, you know they didn't really play. You know why? Because even though they wore the same jerseys to say, this is our team, their helmets were saying, we've got other priorities. I may be playing for the NFC, but the Dallas Cowboys pay my check. So I'm not going to do anything that's going to endanger my relationship with the Cowboys. I don't care what happens in the All-Star game. I'm together, I'm with you, to a point. Tabidi Annabelle says, says, that's often what happens in the church. We say we've got the same jerseys on. We pray, play for Christ. But in the end, we have our own desires, our own agendas, our own values. And in the end, we say it's about me and what I want rather than the gospel. The gospel brings us together around Christ. When the gospel is lost, unity is lost. That's why we must work to always preserve the gospel. And not only that, the gospel must be preserved because it brings freedom. Verse 4, these false brothers came in. Why? To spy out our freedom. Why? They want to bring us back into the slavery under the law. Now, freedom's going to come up again in Galatians. In fact, just as the word force is mentioned three times in the book, freedom is mentioned three times. It's mentioned here, then two times in chapter 5, where Paul says, Jesus set us free, Jesus set us free for freedom, not to enslave. You, church, were called to freedom. Now, what that means is when we get to chapter 5, we're going to be free to dive into freedom with a little more freedom. But for right now, I want you to realize how radical this is. To be free. Free from the weight of performance. Free from the weight of guilt. Free from the burden of hatred and anger to love. But today, in our world, the script has flipped. To our world, following Christ is to be seen as a slave. You ask them, what is it, the world, what does it mean to follow Christ? And they're going to say it's about rules and regulations and not doing what you want to do. So to the world, freedom is found in this. Do what you want. You desire it, do it. No one's supposed to tell you how to live. Whatever you want, whatever you desire, that's freedom. Do you know there's a proverb that says this? There's a way that seems right to, to man. But the end of it is death. Death. 
go down the highway of doing everything you want to do, following every desire of the heart, and the Bible warns us, it will not end well. But Jesus gives us liberty, freedom. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Some argue that that could be better translated. Jesus says, I am the truthful and life-giving way. Walk down the life, path of life with me and you'll know freedom. Oswald Chambers, who is best known for my utmost for his highest, wrote these words. The Spirit of God is always the Spirit of liberty. The Spirit that is not of God is the Spirit of bondage. The Spirit of oppression and depression. The Spirit of God convicts. But He is also the Spirit of liberty. And listen to this next phrase. God who made the birds never made bird cages. It's men who make bird cages. The freedom we have is the grace of God. Now, I know there's this little, little whisper of fear. Well, you start preaching that grace, that's dangerous. No, because as we're going to see, you know what guides us in how to live? The Holy Spirit. And Paul gets to that in chapter 5. So we recognize the gospel must be preserved because it brings true freedom because it gives us Jesus. But also because it brings true equality. Verse 6. As Paul meets with James, John, and Peter, he says they were pillars of the church. But in the end he says, what they were makes no difference to me. In other words, Paul says, I'm not as much looking for their approval Maybe affirmation, but I really don't need it because God has given me the gospel. He says they have a role, yes, but their role makes them no better than anybody else. Our God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't look at us and say, oh, you come from Johnson City? Wow. I love the story that's told about a bank in Chicago. A young man had moved to Chicago from Boston, and he applied for employment at the bank. Of course, the bank asked for letters of recommendation, some references, and the young Bostonian gave them some names to contact, which the bank did. They contacted the investment house that he had worked in in Boston. The investment house responded enthusiastically. The young man is fabulous. His father was a Cabot. His mother was a loyal. Further back, he was a happy blend of salt stalls, peabodies, and others of Boston's finest families. His recommendation was given without hesitation. Several days later, the Chicago bank sent a note saying, Thank you for the information, but it was inadequate. It read, We're not contemplating using the man for breeding purposes, just for work. God is not a respecter of persons. People from every family, every tribe, every nation who fear God and respond to the gospel are part of the people of God. The gospel teaches us to value every person. And when the gospel is lost and legalism becomes the norm, it is the one who does best that is valued the most. It is the gospel that tells us you are valuable because God has made you. 
So that we come together with true equality. All of us, followers of Jesus, saved by grace, not of our works. And that leads us to the fourth point. The gospel must be preserved because it brings compassion. Now the leaders of the church, they affirm Paul's gospel. So they ask him to remember the poor. Just one thing, not to add to the gospel, but saying, don't forget the poor. Not to do this in order to be saved, but because it is what God desires. Now remember the context. Paul is delivering an offering for famine relief. Care for the poor is built into the DNA of the church. This is in lines with Jesus who looked out at the masses and was moved with compassion. The one who looked at the 5,000 who had come to hear him preach, and when they didn't have food, he was moved. The one who wept over Jerusalem. Psalm 72 is a psalm that describes the Messiah. The job description of the Messiah, as it were, said, was, says, he delivers the needy, the poor, and the one who has no helper. The Messiah will have compassion on the weak and needy. The Messiah will redeem the needy from oppression and violence. Don't you thank God that when Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, He did not say, Come to me, all of you who have it together. Come to me, all of you who have got your problems figured out. Then I will help you. Now I recognize that the thoughts of caring for the poor and the needy can be overwhelming. Because the need is great. And it's very easy for us to start thinking about, well, let's just, we'll take care of our immediate area. Why should we care about the rest of the state or North America or the world? That was a question that Dr. Peter Kuzmik, when he was installed as professor of world missions at Gordon-Conwell Conwell, uh, Seminary in Boston, answered. In his address to his other faculty members and the students, he said, we are challenged today by modernization, modernized recasting of Tertullian's question. What has Boston to do with Bosnia? Why should we concern ourselves with the human tragedies of Bosnia, Somalia, and Bangladesh? Why should we care that a holocaust is taking place in Rwanda when it's obvious that the Lord has placed us to be secure from those dangers and other winds of adversity? Should we worry about restoring democracy to Haiti? Or ask questions about human rights in China? Or be concerned with the plight of Cuban immigrants? Why should we burden ourselves with the burdens of the world and allow ourselves to be disturbed by the statistics of war, disease, and poverty? Why should the turmoils of the world disrupt the tranquility of our hearts and surroundings? Dr. Kuzmik went on to say, May I suggest that there is only one compelling reason. For God so loved the world. That's why we care about Johnson City and Nashville and Memphis and Quebec and Mexico City and Beijing and Paris and London. Because God so loved the world and was moved with compassion. These four things. These are the four things that I think sparkle on the diamond of the gospel. 
unity, freedom, equality, and compassion. And these things reveal the uniqueness of the gospel. Not just, I mean, the the bottom line uniqueness is that God came in the flesh and died on the cross for our sins. No other faith teaches that. But as a result of his death and resurrection, that means that in a world that says divide and conquer, the gospel says unite in Christ. In a world that says freedom is found and do your own thing, the gospel says freedom is found in Christ. In a world that says some are more equal than others, the gospel says all are precious in his sight. And in a world that says fend for yourself, the gospel says that compassion is the way of God. I hope you've experienced this gospel. Not just know the facts and the propositional truths, but to be walking the way that gives life and is truth. Would you bow with me in prayer right now? Father, the gospel is true, and at the heart of the gospel is the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. But Father, the gospel has ramifications. And just as Paul stood up to defend the gospel and its ramifications, so we too must defend it. And Lord, let us start by allowing your spirit to examine our hearts. Father, let your spirit move within us. So we ask you first this morning, O Lord, to show us, are are we living in unity? Does reconciliation and forgiveness mark our lives? Father, we ask you to examine our hearts, Lord. Does freedom, does freedom characterize us? Does your spirit lead us to know joy? And do we know the freedom that comes from your grace and walking with you and living by your power according to your way? Father, reveal to us how we treat one another. Just as you are a respecter of no one and show love to all, Lord, help us to do the same. And then, Father, I ask you in the area of compassion. Help us to be compassionate. To do just as James, Peter, and John instructed Paul. To remember the poor and the needy. Help us to do these things, O God, to your glory. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen.